Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. Yes, and as usual, if you have any questions that you would like answered or even hearing us banter and dialogue back and forth about, please feel free to send them in to info at grove.church. Uh, I've already seen some questions come in. I'm actually kind of really excited about this month's Q&A podcast. So stay tuned for that at the end of the month. Yeah, they're going to be awesome. Well, this week on the Bible Talk, we're going to kick it off with uh, the story of Jehu, which is kind of an interesting, uh, he's an interesting character in the book of Second Kings. And he's almost, um, I guess you could call him an anti-hero of some kind, of some sorts. Where yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, he's uh, he's not listed among the good kings of Israel, and we're going to find out why. But he does do some good things. So I guess kind of a similar uh, similar to Saul in that in that regard. Yeah. But uh, just to kind of go through uh, his whole story. So in chapters nine through eleven, we are introduced to the character of Jehu, who ends up becoming the tenth king of Israel. Now, if you remember uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, about a generation earlier are the king and queen of Israel and they are uh, really promoting Baal worship. Horrible and, people. Yeah. Baal. Yeah. Also particularly Jezebel is the worst, but uh, Baal is B-A-A-L. It's a false God. Um, and really they were turning the hearts of the people of Israel away from worshiping God to worshiping Baal. Last week we talked about Elijah and uh, his kind of, pray off, if you will, with the prophets of Baal, which ends really well uh, for Elijah, not so well for the prophets of Baal. Uh, Ahab ends up dying in battle. Jezebel's kind of the older queen mother at this point, and then Ahab's son is ruling. So, it's with that background that Elisha, so the guy who takes over for Elijah, actually anoints Jehu as king. And Jehu spent years as um, kind of one of King Ahab's mighty men. Uh, and he's also serving his son, Jehoram is his name. Uh, and Jehu is anointed king. All of the soldiers who are with Jehu when this happens are basically with him right from the start. Apparently, they did not have much love for Jehoram. And so, it, the Bible just talks about it's a really interesting story where Jehu just rides in to a place where Jehoram and then also uh, Ahaziah is how I'm going to choose to pronounce it. But the king of Judah. That's right. Uh, yes. The king of Judah is there as well. And they just come in and the king, uh, Jehoram is like, Hey, Jehu, what's up? And Jehu's like, there will be justice. And then he just like kills the king. And then it says he actually like throws a spear at him through a chariot. No, he shoots a bone at him through a chariot. Um, he orders the king of Judah to be killed as well, which that king was also evil and not serving God. So Jehu basically like takes out, uh, two bad kings, bad kings who were, uh, not doing well. He comes back into the city, uh, Jezebel's up in a tower and he's like, Hey, Jezebel. And he goes to the servants, like throw her down. And apparently they just listen and they threw her out of the tower. And then there's some like gory stuff that I don't really want to go into, but yeah, needless to say, uh, does not end well for Jezebel. No, it does not. And the prophecy of her being eaten by dogs comes true. So there you go. Uh, and then after this goes on, in one of my favorite just kind of savage moments of any king, uh, Jehu goes through, he has every single prophet of Baal killed. So anyone who – and he kind of tricks them into it. He has this thing where it's like, hey, let's offer sacrifices to Baal. I want this to be awesome. So every single prophet, anyone who serves Baal, I want you to come and we're going to do this thing. And so everyone shows up and they go inside of uh, a room and Jehu basically just – 
sends in his soldiers, closes the doors, and you know whatever happens, happens, right? So deuces, deuces to the prophets of Baal. And then in my favorite uh, footnote of the Bible so far, or I guess in the, at least in Second Kings, I should say, uh, Jehu turns the house of Baal into a public bathroom. Uh, the exact word is latrine, but basically he sacks the place, digs pits, and now where people once worshipped Baal, they're uh, they're doing their number twos. So just a great. Uh, did you see what I did there when I said deuces? Oh, I was, I was alluding dude, to this upcoming. That was smart. It was pretty brilliant. Everyone, um, you'll like it now that I said. It. I just didn't <laughs> want to spoil it without having some fun with it. So. Yeah, so a re- really Jehu's reign begins um, a lot of bloodshed, but honestly, he is doing God's will, and uh, he is. After Jehu, uh, the worship of Baal in Israel is effectively over. Like you don't see it rise up as this big problem again. Jehu does end this. But the issue with him and the reason he's not counted among the good kings is even though uh, he obeys the word of God and ends the worship of Baal in Israel, he does not end idolatry in general. And from what we gather, Jehu doesn't really worship God all that much. He doesn't make any effort to turn the people back to God, but they just worship other idols. So... Um, on the one hand, again, kind of a complicated character where he does some good things. Um, clearly, he's empowered by the Lord to do some things that need to be done. Um, but at the same time, he never becomes a good king or a godly king. His heart is not after God, but rather um, he essentially follows in the line of the other kings of Israel, maybe to a lesser degree, but uh, certainly we would not call him one of the good kings. And that is the story of Jehu. So chapters 9 through 11, just kind of be paying attention to it. Um, one of the more uh, fascinating kings of Israel because most of the kings of Israel are just they're just all bad. So Jehu's actually got some complicated things going on. Yeah, it's kind of a personality disorder when it comes to uh, the king uh, of Israel. So, uh, really good story. Uh, we're we're also going to be wrapping up Revelation this week, week which. I was lamenting a little bit ago that uh, I feel like we've just barely even touched on Revelation, and it's a book that I've uh, learned to really love and enjoy. Uh, and so I'm just going to highlight for us real quick, uh, Revelation chapter 19. It's a pretty familiar passage if you've been in the Christian circle or world for a while, uh, where it's this image of Jesus. And so I'm going to read it, uh, and then I have a few thoughts I want to remind us about the value of it. It says this in verse 11 of chapter 19, it says this, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, uh, and he sat upon him as and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. There we go. And in righteousness, he, do, he doth judge and make war. Ooh, CSB. I know, CSB. I like it. Uh, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a, a vesture dipped in blood. And I wonder if I changed the, the translation somehow. Anyways, dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth... Yeah, I had to have changed it because now it says goeth. This just, is when you check. You just che- roll with it. Your... I, uh, I love the poetic language. Uh, just roll with I'm it. I'm not poetic. And out of this mouth goeth a sharp sword. And with that, uh, with it he should smite the nations. This is King James. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he had on his vesture, on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, and it continues on, and I'm just going to sh- stop being distracted by it. Uh, but the one of the commentaries that I read in talking about this was just this idea of the coming king. Revelation is a phenomenal book of, uh, of really it's true to his name. It's a revelation of uh, of the work of the Spirit speaking to the churches uh, in in the New Testament world, um, and it's this tension in this picture of 
of who Jesus is. It's it's this king that is coming. That the title in the the passage that I was reading in the commentary uh, was literally the return of the king, which immediately immediately made me think of Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings, which is the also third, a great book. Yes, also a great book, uh, great trilogy. Um, and so you should read it or watch it if you haven't done that yet. Um, but he just talks about this, uh, Christ is coming back. And this is the, the picture of Christ's return, uh, the final, uh, judgment, the final, uh, work of, of Christ in his sovereignty. Uh, and it's, it says this in the commentary and this is where I kind of want to bring the picture in revelation 11 to 21. It gives us this picture of who Jesus is and the authority that he has. Uh, and the commentary says this, and I quote, it says, consider his authority over you referring to Jesus the coming king. It says, when the king gives an order, however mundane the command may seem, the carrying out of the directive is significant to the servant to the degree that he loves his master. In other words, what he's saying is, when to the degree we love Jesus, is this, it will, will be revealed in how we carry out even the mundane tasks that he calls us and tells us to. Our job is to serve the king and the master. He continues on the commentary, And he says this, if you conceive of yourself as serving your master, you will not need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. Uh, Total confession. I don't know what plaudits means, but Evan will tell me later. I don't know either. It says, as we serve him, just kidding, you won't. As he says, as we serve him, like the sentinels at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And it's interesting because he uses the tombs of uh, the sentinels at the guards at the tomb of the unknown soldier as kind of a parallel where their call is to guard that tomb. That's all they do. They, whether rain or snow or whatever, they're out there no matter the conditions because their job, even in the mundane, you're guarding, patrolling, pacing back and forth. Uh, and, and for those of you who don't know what the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is, it's, a, it's a monument that we have uh, that kind of just commemorates uh, those soldiers where we don't really know what happened just because of, yeah, just because of battle things happen. So yeah. it's a, it's a monument to them. So we always, there's always a guard. That is patrolling and guarding that tomb. 24-7. Uh, there's not a, I, I think rarely, there may have been moments because I'm not there. But anyway, so he talks about the unknown soldier and their, the mundane flat task of being present and controlling. Uh, it says that we serve God, the, the coming king, like those sentinels of the tomb of the unknown soldier. And he continues on, says, we do not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate the table of the enemy ponder the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. That's kind of poetic too. You're welcome. There's good language. And then he says this, we serve the King. And, and I think as, as we wrap up revelation this week, we must remember as followers of Christ, we serve the King, no matter the mundane, no matter the difficult, no matter how meaningless a task may seem in following Jesus, doing what he calls us to is the most important part. And when our perspective is right, right. When we remember, we serve the King that is is one of the most profound, freeing, empowering things that we can do. Uh, and just a reminder, as you finish up Revelation this week, it's not about a book of punishment, but it's a book about where the Spirit is speaking to the churches. Um, and you and I should make sure we pay careful attention as we read this book uh, and, and pay attention to its leading. Because as followers of Christ, we serve the King who has already won. And I'm just going to nerd out really quick do it. about the... Uh... I'm just going to read 15 and 16 again because I think they sound Oh, really go for cool. it, bro. But it's, and it's a really cool picture of uh, Christ coming back. Did you change story. the translation? No, I'm reading okay. in the King James because I just it got distracted. Awesome. It was brutal. And it goes, and out of, I'm going to actually in my epic voice, I'm just going to do it. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture 
and a name on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I just think it's pretty cool. That's good. So that's my whole thing. Uh, anyways, moving forward in uh, the Bible talk today, we're also going to talk about Luke. Uh, we only had a couple chapters that we read in Luke, but this is also one of my uh, one of my things I love about the Gospels is kind of picking up stories that maybe we don't talk about um, as much in church, but are really interesting, uh, really interesting stories that tell us more about who Jesus is. Um, and this one, I, I titled this section in our notes. Uh, the greatest Bible study ever. And so this is after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to two of his disciples. Um, I think we get the name of one, and I can't remember what it is, but then not one of his 12 disciples, or just kind of two of uh, the people who are following him. Uh, and then this happens. So I was going to read the passage, and we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, so in chapter 24, verses 13 through 27, it says this, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emas, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing them to, and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes kept from, kept, were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas, there we go, there's the guy who's named, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And, he, and they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed, and the word before God and all of the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be contempt, condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And, he, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. And it's that last little throwaway verse that I think is so interesting. It says, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, which is a euphemism meaning the, the whole of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them all in scripture, all of the things, including himself. And I think as Christians, one of the things that we need to make sure that we do is we look for pictures of Christ all throughout scripture, not just in the New Testament. And I think sometimes we can fall into this trap where we think, you know, the Old Testament is just God the Father, um, and then the New Testament we get uh, Jesus and we get the Holy Spirit, and there's kind of this, you know, Trinitarian thing going on. But there are pictures of Jesus, there are ways of, of seeing Jesus that um, – are all throughout the Old Testament. And there's this sermon I honestly cannot remember the pastor's name because he was a guest speaker on a podcast I was listening it's to. Probably Aaron Den. Yeah, probably. No, dude, he had this super sweet, like low gravelly voice. Like I can't even do an impression of it. It was incredible. And it was just so nice. But it was called Jesus is the Better Blank. And he went hmm. through the Old Testament and his idea, and I won't I won't say all of it, but um, you know, look it up. It's somewhere around. Maybe I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But uh, you know, the idea is Jesus is the better Adam, you know, whereas Adam is uh, the firstborn of creation. And because of his fall, the rest of mankind is condemned. Jesus is the firstborn of God's creation. Hmm. Uh, and because of his triumph, all of mankind is redeemed. Jesus is the better. And he just kind of goes through um, all of the different pictures that we see of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, it's just a really, yeah, it's just a really beautiful thing. And I, 
I don't know. This this is one of those things where I always think to myself, like I'm at, like like Luke, why didn't you write down like what was said? Like he's just like, and then Jesus went on this incredible thing, moving on with the story. Yeah, right. And so uh, when we get to heaven, I'll have I to want more. I'll have to ask about that. But yeah, um, and, and basically what the point I would bring from that is, um, the story of Christ is not a thing that just appears out of nowhere. This is God's plan of redemption from yeah. from the very beginning. We see in Genesis when he uh, when God talks to Eve about you know one day a son will come and the serpent will bite at his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. All these different things, and Jesus is not um, something that comes out of left field, but rather he is a fulfillment of the entirety of Scripture. And and, and this little passage is a way of, of reminding us of that. So good. And then we're going to, uh, I feel like we're kind of coming to the end of the Chronicles and Kings narratives uh, as we revisit history. All um, I can think of is when you said that it's the Chronicles of Narnia for Chronicles, some reason. It's the Chronic what? Chronicles of Narnia. Hashtag you're welcome. Um, but so Second Chronicles 24, uh, I almost feel like at this point it's kind of becoming a broken record uh, where we're just revisiting how bad the kings of, <clears throat> excuse me, Israel and Judah are. And Classic it's just almost kings. this continual broken record. And so uh, as you, we jump into Second Chronicles this week, uh, the chapter 24 actually kind of shows a, a unique uh, story of the King Joash who steps into uh, reign at seven years old. It says he reigns for 40 years, so about 47 years old is when he dies. Uh, and it's this... Uh, Dichotomy. It's this uh, contrast between dichotomy. Wasn't the right word. It just sounded make me sound really smart. Uh, but it's this contrast between a king who's doing right in the eyes of the Lord and restoring the temple and restoring you know the 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 worship of God in in God's people and he's doing the right things and then he goes and does the opposite. And by the end of his reign, he ends up doing the wrong thing. He ends up allowing people to worship other idols. He leads people to worship other idols and worship other gods. Um, and so we see this, this, this contrast in one King's life specifically from the good to the bad, uh, almost uh, similar to, to the King we revisited already earlier in Jehu. Um, but you see this breakdown in, in chapter 24, uh, you see at seven years old, he is being encouraged and, and influenced and led by the prophet Jehoiada and he does right. He brings worship. He actually creates a temple tax where people, the people uh, of God are, are bringing in money and resources to repair and restore the temple. Things are going well. And then you see in verse 15, Jehoiada dies. This prophet who was a voice to Joash ends up dying, passes away. And then it says the princes of Judah in verse 17 begin to influence him and he changes course where he was going in one direction and restoring and focusing on the temple and restoring worshiping of God and not false prophet or false gods. Uh, he then, when the prophet passes away, he then becomes influenced by the princes of Judah he doesn't listen to them, and then he ends up being assassinated. Uh, and then his life is this broken, like, into shambles and sadness of the simple fact that he was a king at seven years old, which is pretty remarkable in and of itself. My daughter's now six to think that she could become a queen next year when she turns seven would be crazy to think about. Good luck to her subjects. <laughs> well, she acts like a princess, so she might be able to do it up. That's fair. She would just, she would imitate Princess Elena, so... I don't know how good that would be. I don't know who that is, but okay. You'll, once you have kids, you'll find out. <laughs> um, but long story short, I just think it's interesting to see in one king, even in the broken record where we were revisiting time and time and time and time and time and time, and time again, how 
wrong and how evil the kings were, uh, someone who started off on the right track and then was veered away because of the wrong influence uh, is such an incredible reminder for you and I as we get ready to wrap up Second yeah. Chronicles and the King's narratives. Absolutely. And then we're going to uh, talk today about a couple of different prophets that were actually doing ministry at the time that we're talking about in Kings and Chronicles. Uh, the first one that we're going to bring up is the prophet Joel, which is kind of, uh, I feel like he's one of those prophetic books that we don't really talk about very often. So as we read through, um, he can be a little bit harder to read because it is very, uh, it's very poetic in nature when you're looking at the structure of the book. That's how it's broken down. And so, um, I do think it would be helpful to kind of talk about what is going on with the book, but also how it connects uh, to our oh, faith good. today. And Joel really does. And so uh, most likely it's written uh, in the early pre-exile period, just kind of because of the way that he talks about certain uh, areas, although there's no definite uh, date given within the book. So that's kind of our best guess. But um, that's where I land, and that's where a lot of uh, mostly conservative Bible scholars land um, as well. And the main theme of Joel is this idea of the day of the Lord. And so it's a it's a phrase that we hear a lot. And, and the way it happens is at, at some point in Israel's history, um, there's a particularly bad locust plague. And so it comes in, a lot of crops are destroyed, and it's with this backdrop that Joel actually does his ministry. And he's ta- he, he's encouraging the people of Israel to, to lament uh, what's been going on with the plague, but to also repent and turn back to God. And, and just like most of the prophets say, um, repentance is not just about, you know, putting on sackcloth and ashes and doing all these different things, but it's it's really what, what God is after is a heart change. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's in the Psalms where it's uh, the sacrifice sacrifices of our God is a broken and a contrite heart. Um, but the idea is God's not just after the outer uh, vestiges, I guess, of repentance, but he's really after uh, the inner work of the heart as well. And and crazily enough, because most of the time when the prophets do this, no one listens. Uh, and that's actually a theme with both the prophets we're talking about today. But uh, Joel does these things, and the people of Israel actually listen. Uh, they uh, they turn away from what they were doing. They repent. They turn back to God, at least for a season of time. And, and, and a lot of this is with the backdrop of this kind of these two different ideas of the day of the Lord. So the first day of the Lord is this idea of, of judgment. And this is where um, uh, in one of uh, uh, my textbooks for, for Bible school, it refers to it as the, the imminent day of the Lord. Or in other words, it's a day of judgment where if you do not turn back to God, basically there's a point of no return where he is, he is just going to punish you. And eventually we see Israel and later Judah reach that point. Um, Israel ends up being conquered by Assyria and Judah mm-hmm. by Babylon. Um, and, and so the day of the Lord in that sense comes. But the, the more interesting, I guess, part for us today is this future day of the Lord that he talks about. And I'm just going to read uh, in Joel chapter 2, uh, verses 28 through 32. It says this, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even the male and the female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and smoke and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, and as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. 
And the idea here is, and I love in um, at Pentecost when Peter is preaching in in Acts chapter two, he talks about how you know a lot of like they're um, the at this point the disciples they have uh, this gift of tongues that happens where these. Uh, tongues of fire appear on top of their heads and all of a sudden they begin to speak in languages that they've never even heard before and everyone around is, is hearing the gospel presented to them. It's, it's just really an incredible story. Um, and he says, you know, a lot of you think that we're drunk or something like that has happened, but this is what has been prophesied by the prophet Joel. And it's this kind of this, this coming of the day of the Lord that after um, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is poured out and not just on, um, as we see in the Old Testament, on specific people where you have, you know, a prophet rises up is empowered by God or a king rises up and is empowered by God. But in the, in the new Testament in Acts, we see um, the Holy spirit just falling on everyone. And what I mean by that is like salvation is coming. The empowerment of the spirit for ministry is yeah. coming and we see it. Um, I, I love, it's kind of almost a throwaway line. Um, but in 32, it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So not just uh, the Jewish people, not just the people of Israel, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's just kind of this beautiful picture of um, an Old Testament prophet, Joel, writing about this day that is to come. And then in Pentecost, we see at the very least a partial fulfillment of of yeah. that prophecy, which I think is a, is a great thing. Yeah. And Joel, it's, I, I think you're right. I think it is an interesting uh, book that is sometimes easily glanced over. Uh, and I think most of the minor prophets are that way. Yeah, short uh, books. Yeah, they just say, oh, okay, that was a good story. But yeah, really good. Uh, and then we're going to read some Psalms again this week. Uh, and I, I just really love just literally one verse in Psalm 27. Um, and this is where I kind of get that pastoral exhortive uh, encouragement to you. Uh, as you read Psalm 27, it just starts off, it says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And then he says these four words, whom shall I fear? Uh, and I love that because it's it's a psalm of David. He writes this psalm, and uh, this one verse sets the entirety of Psalm 27 in motion. Uh, and it's important to note that David is not simply expressing confidence in him, in the Lord, uh, but he's also cultivating that confidence for the widest range of life, of challenging life situations. In other words, it's not just a feel good, um, God, you're my, you know, my light and my salvation. I'm not going to fear anyone, but it's this, this cultivating, it's this, um, it's the work that's required to prepare for any situations that comes his way. Uh, and, and as I was reading this, uh, this week in preparation for, uh, this podcast, I really, um, was just reminded, man, like, I long for the day in my own life, and I would even say in the lives of, of every Christian, every follower of Christ out there, that we get beyond our circumstances, our situations, and we just begin to take God at his word for who he is. And rather than reading our circumstances, rather than reading our, our situations into scripture, and when we read something like, whom shall I fear, uh, I have a tendency to read that and be like, yeah, but... Man, I just I'm just not that good of a uh, of a speaker. I'm not that good of a of a dad, or I'm not that good of a of an employee, or I'm not. I begin to to create situations or circumstances that then go directly um, in contrast or conflict with the truth that I'm reading. And David here is modeling for us through the entire psalm the reality that the Lord is our light and our salvation. We have no one and nothing to fear. 
that it's something that we can live according to. Uh, and I, I just really, I, I really want, um, as I read God's word, it's a challenge. I want it to transform. I want it to inspire me to trust in Jesus more, not try and be a better version of myself. Uh, and so as I read that and I read the entirety of Psalm 27, it just comes back to the simple statement in verse one that sets the entire Psalm in motion that because of the Lord being my light and my salvation, I don't have to fear, which means every circumstance I face, every, every situation I come across, every, hard conflict or moment that I am engaging in, I can walk confidently knowing that God is everything I need. Um, And I hope that there's a day where I stop reading my circumstances into God's word and the truth of God's word. And I begin to let the God's word and the truth of God's word read my circumstances and change the way I view them. So it's just a great reminder for us in Psalm 27. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the last book that we're going to talk about today is actually the uh, the book of Jonah. And so we're gonna, we're not going to spend a ton of time on it because I think that um, for many of us who grew up in church or have been Christians for a while, we're familiar with the story of Jonah. There's even VeggieTales That's and true. kids songs. Jonah sing. was a prophet. Yep. Ooh, ooh. It's, a great, it's a great movie. Um, anyway. Go watch it. Um, but also, I think unlike Joel, Jonah is also a very easy read in that it's mostly narrative. Um, so as you're reading it, you're getting what's going on. So I don't think we have to dive too deep into it. But I, I wanted to say a couple themes really quick before we uh, before we sign off for this week to, to look out for. Um, first off, and this kind of actually connects to what we were talking about with Joel, um, in Jonah, we see one of the first pictures of this idea that God's salvation does not just apply to the people of Israel, which is um, kind of an attitude that's taken up. But Jonah is is commanded by God to go into the city of Nineveh and to basically uh, preach repentance to them, which is an incredible thing. Um, the second thing I would say is that Jonah allows um, bitterness and hatred to take over his heart in a way that prevents him from actually doing ministry the way that God would have him do ministry. And so first off, when Jonah hears the call, he, he doesn't want to go. Um, and it takes, you know, obviously uh, it takes the great fish and all these different things to, uh, to swallow Jonah and, and, and whatnot um, to finally get him to Nineveh. But even when he's there and he's preaching and the people of Nineveh actually turn away and repent, he still is, he's angry with God for showing them mercy. And there's a passage that I'm paraphrasing it, but basically it's like, I knew that you would be merciful and that you were steadfast in your love and you're just the worst. Like it's just Jonah railing against God for his love and his grace and his mercy. Um, which I think as Christians for us today, we can get to that point. And mm-hmm. maybe it's not for a, a people group, or maybe it is, and you need to check your heart on that. But um, whether it's, yeah, for, for people broad or generally, or whether for it's for a person where we just can't ever imagine um, being willing to forgive them for whatever it is that they've done. And, and, and Jonah is a cautionary tale of how when we allow bitterness and hatred to just fester in our hearts and, and never deal with it and never bring it to God, um, it changes even our perspective on God, just like it did with Jonah, yeah. which is a pretty crazy thing. And uh, and the final thing I'll say is um, God's command to Jonah to go into Nineveh and do ministry is it's a radical thing. And we oftentimes don't talk about it, but I think sometimes Jonah's painted as kind of just like, well, he's racist and he hates the Assyrians or whatever it is. Um, but it's not exactly like that cut and dry where Jonah just like hates them because they're from this country. Like the Assyrians are like, they're pretty terrible people. Like yeah. they're going through, uh, eventually they are the, the nation that conquers Israel. Nineveh is the capital. That's why I'm referring to them as the Assyrians being called the Ninevites or whatever. Um, 
but they're going through and they're burning cities and they're capturing people. They're killing people. Like, it's not like these are just some peaceful people who Jonah happens to hate. Um, no, they're the enemy of Jonah's people. Yeah. And, and yet God commands Jonah in that moment to do ministry there, preach repentance, preach my love, preach my mercy, which is an incredible thing. And so those are the themes that I would look out for uh, in Jonah as you read. It's a, it's a really great story, but it's also a really great heart check, I think, for us today as Christians. Um, but with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up for this week. Uh, just a quick reminder that we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of the Grove Church. You can find all of our different podcasts and resources on our website at www.grove.church. I don't know why I gave the W's in there, but, you know, HTTP Old school throwback. colon backslash backslash church um, and also leave us a uh, review on whatever device you're listening on it really helps uh, just to get the word out for, out there and to grow this community of people reading the Bible together uh, with that being said we will see you all next week